Oh, I see my name up there with two S's. So just so that you know, if you ever write my name to me with two S's, I'll give you one shot to get it right. And then if you get it wrong again, I'll start adding consonants to your name. <laughs> so um, there are a couple of people in here, probably, yes. Paul, Paul um, knows about this. Paul was P-Paul for like months, months and months and months. And then finally, we were M-A-R-I-S-A. Mm -hmm. Hey, thank you. That, because that wasn't shade at all. <laughs> it wasn't shade at all. Um, so the Lord did that for me, um, just that moment of um, laughter for me, because I've actually been a little heavy um, the last few weeks having to get ready to give, um, yeah, to talk today about a testimony of hope. Um, and so I brought these tissues. I shouldn't leave them up here in the front. That's a little bit much. Um, neither, this is a bit much too. Oh my gosh, this is so much. Um, so as, uh, as, Watson, as Watson mentioned, we're in a series called The Whole Story, taken from that passage that we read in, uh, in Psalm 40. Um, and in the first week, Andrea set up the series talking about what it means to share our story and what it means to receive the stories of others. And more than that, what sharing those stories and receiving those stories says about the work that God is doing um, in us, among us, and through us. And then last week, uh, Dana preached about the testimonies of community, and she shared about the, role of, about the role of testimony in the community of God and the role that the community of God has in our testimony. And so this week, we turn our attention to testimonies of hope. And so a quick disclaimer, I was assigned Psalm 40, 11 through 13. And that passage is straight legit, but that's not what happened this week. And then that's not what happened between last night and this morning, okay? So what happened actually is a sermon right now that's uh, pretty hard to, to, to show up to right now because I'm struggling with hope, um, actually. Um, so surprise, surprise that, you know, the divine hoodwinker was like, come preach this sermon. Um, the divine hoodwinker is God. That's how I talk about my, it's like, you hoodwink me, God, you know, a little bait and switch. Um, and because this sermon has changed so much between last night and this morning, I'm going to pray that the Lord gives us the wisdom of cows, where we know how to chew the hay and spit out the sticks. Okay. Um, and whew, I'm actively, I'm actively, actively, actively right now placing my hope in Jesus to give you what you need this morning and that it's not based on my ability to transition well or to have slides, because there are no slides this morning, <laughs> you know, or um, yeah, to be insightful or even at times to make nouns and verbs agree. Um, so we are going, we're gonna trust the Lord. We're gonna trust the Lord. So because we, um, because we, we meaning I, needed a way to organize this morning's sermon, and it came pretty late um, in the evening last night, this morning. Um, we are falling on the five W's and the one H, okay? Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Not even in that order, 
because that's not how organized we are right now, okay? So, um, but just let you know that we're, we're trying to cover, we're trying to cover all those things, okay? So first, what is hope? What is hope? The Oxford English Dictionary says that hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. That hope is a person or a thing that may help or save someone. Hope is, the, or hope is the grounds for believing that something good may happen. And interestingly enough, uh, once upon a time, a popular but now out of date definition of hope is our trust or reliance. Hope meant trust, hope meant reliance. And honestly, if I just took the, if we just took these three definitions this morning and asked you, like asked each of us, like right, to take an inventory of our own lives simply based on the definition, that would be, that would be more than enough. What certain things do you want to happen? What are your desires? Can you name them? Why do you want that thing to happen? Do you need it to happen? Do you feel ashamed about this desire? Do you feel entitled to this desire? Do you feel desperate about this desire? Do you feel worthy of this desire? Do you feel that it's not safe to have this desire? What happens if you don't get this desire? What's the person or the thing that you're trusting in to get this desire? Are you trusting yourself? Are you trusting someone else? Are you trusting in something that you've earned or been given to get this desire? Are you trusting in some future goal? And when X happens, then Y? Or are you hedging your bets, saying if I don't get too involved, then I won't get hurt? And what are your grounds for even believing that this will happen? Do you deserve it? Was it promised? Is it owed to you? If all we did today was let the spirit examine our hearts on those questions, that would actually be more than enough. So that, that is what, that's like what technically the definition of hope is. So I'm gonna jump to the when. When is hope under attack, right? When is hope under attack? So that makes me sort of think like, okay, what are the enemies of hope? Doubt is an enemy of hope. And not doubt when you're like actually like, okay, I'm really struggling to try to like understand this or I'm really, you know, I doubt this will happen. Or, but like sustained doubt, for example, in the promises of God. This can't, this, I don't think that this will happen and probably not for me. Sustained doubt is an enemy of hope, particularly when it's a pervasive condition. False hope is an enemy of hope. Confident feelings about something that just simply isn't true, right? Someone doesn't study for a test, they don't know any of the material, and you come up to them and you say, oh, you're gonna do great on that test. Okay, that's false hope. Okay, that is false hope. Despair is an enemy of hope. The complete loss or the absence of hope, hopelessness. To lose or abandon hope, despair is an enemy of hope. Disappointment is an enemy of hope. 
sadness or displeasure that's caused by the lack of fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations, if we, if we remain in that space of disappointment too long, that's an enemy of our hope. And disappointment can lead to apathy or indifference, which is also an enemy of hope. That sense that I don't care means that I, don't, that I won't be disappointed. Lowered hopes or no hopes are actually a lot more manageable. These are the enemies of hope. This is when hope is under attack. So why is hope important? Okay. In the series guide, if you don't have this, I think we still have some more in the hallway. Someone can nod who knows the answer to this question. Yes, excellent. Thank you so much, Anna. So there's some more of these. If you haven't picked them up, this is the whole story series guide. And in the opening of the hope, series, the hope section, um, page 10, it says, what fuels our faith through hardship, disappointment, discouragement, and fear? It's hope. Hope is capable of sustaining us in the moment and for the long haul. It is the compelling factor of our faith stories, our, te our, our testimonies, even when we don't realize it. Hope is what helps us persevere in storms. Hope is what helps us make it through trials. And biblically, hope is described as a concrete thing, which is interesting because sometimes I think we think of hope as this like ephemeral, wishy-washy, maybe, I hope it doesn't, I hope this doesn't happen, but hope is a concrete thing. And Hebrews 6.19 says that hope is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Hope is weighty. And right, we know what anchors are, right? They're connected to boats, right? And they're the thing that keeps boats from drifting due to, due to wind or due to current. So when the boat is in harbor and they drop anchor, or maybe in a, in a small, more shallow body of water where the anchor can actually hit the ground, it keeps the boat in place, no matter what the wind is doing and no matter what the water is doing so the boat doesn't go off too far. And anchors are also used in the sea to help boats stay on course. So that when the boat is actually going somewhere, it doesn't get off course too fast if the winds are too high or the currents are too fast. And so the drag of the anchor will actually keep the boat moving in the direction that it's intended to. Hope keeps us from drifting. It's important to say that biblical hope isn't about good weather for our planned outings, right? I just want, you know, whenever hope is mentioned in the scriptures, it's about weighty things. It's about future things. It's about things we can't see to keep us grounded in the present. Some of the ways that hope is described or the way that hope is used in the scriptures, the hope and the resurrection of the dead, the hope of righteousness, the hope of the gospel, the hope of the glory of God, the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, the hope of salvation, the hope of your calling, the hope of eternal life. These are weighty things. These are weighty things. So where have I seen hope? Where have I seen this kind of hope in this weighty thing that happens, that's happening in the future that I can't see but keeps me grounded in the present 
Because a testimony of hope is a testimony of how we wait for God. Hope is how we wait for God. Hope is how we trust in God. And so I want to share two perspectives on hope from scripture. And then I want to turn a little bit to my own story. So from the book of Daniel, to Old Testament, one of the uh, Old Testament uh, books, Daniel was, uh, the book of Daniel is with the, with the books of the prophets. And um, this is the testimony of Hananiah, Mishael, Mishael, and Azariah, or as they might be more commonly known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the very short setup is that the people of Israel are in exile in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, has just set up a golden image that's 90 feet high and nine feet wide. And then the Babylonians say, the Babylonian officials say, that when we play music, everyone bows down to this 90 foot high, nine foot wide golden image. And anyone who doesn't will be thrown in a fiery furnace. And so some of the Babylonian leaders are out to get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they stir up King Nebuchadnezzar and they tell him, look, these three are refusing to bow down. They don't listen to you. So Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He's so angry. And so he summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he asks them, is this true? Are you refusing me? And he says, but I'll, look, I'll give you another opportunity to change your minds. And all will be well if you just hear the music and you bow down. But if you don't, I will throw you into the furnace. And then who will be able to save you? And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they reply to him, and they say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. There's something, there's something, there's, there's, mm, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay on point, right? <laughs> this has changed so many times. Let's just follow the notes. Um, let's follow the notes. Okay, so there are two hopes expressed here, okay? There are two hopes that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are expressing here. There's a hope of the moment, and then there's a deeper hope. The hope of the moment is that God will save them from the furnace, okay? Nobody wants to die in the fiery furnace, okay? Nobody wants that to happen, except for Nebuchadnezzar, but nobody wants that to happen. But the deeper hope is that God is worthy of their devotion, no matter what happens, God is worthy of their devotion no matter what happens, even if he doesn't do what they want him to do and what they expect him to do. That is the deeper hope. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are already very clear on both hopes before they see any outcomes. Before they see any outcomes, they're already clear. And so sometimes when my hope of the moment isn't met, I, I feel like I'm scrambling to get back to this place of deeper hope to the devotion of God when I'm disappointed. But that's our work. That's our work. Our work is getting ourselves to that deeper devotion, to that deeper hope, because we will be disappointed. We will be disappointed. In this world, you will have trouble. That's one for your promise boxes. <laughs> the second story of hope is in uh, Luke 18. And there are two hopes in this one, too. There's the hope of the widow that we'll, we'll talk about. And then there's Jesus' hope. Jesus has hope, too. So in Luke 18, uh, I would encourage you to you know, read the parable on your own. But in Luke 18, Jesus tells his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. There's a widow who's waiting for justice, but there's also an, an, an unjust judge who won't give this justice to her. But she persists in asking, judge, grant me justice against my adversary. And so finally, finally, after, after being like really, like I've heard this woman so many times, the judge finally relents and grants her justice. At the end of this parable, Jesus says something to the effect of like, if even an unjust judge will finally relent, won't God bring justice about for those who cry out to him day and night? But then he ends with this question. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus is asking the question, like, while we're waiting for our hopes, if we have to wait, Jesus is asking, will you desert me? If you have to wait, will you hold on to your hope? When I come back, right, Jesus is saying, like, I'm, com I'm coming back, I'm returning. And I hope that I find you waiting well. So then there's my own sort of testimony of hope. And this is, I'm just like, oh my gosh. Because I, I realize that I don't share a lot. I have been, in, in most of my preaching, I haven't shared a lot of my story um, with you all. And so this feels a little revealing. But it's a testimony series, right? So I gotta, gotta say something, right? You gotta be a good elder, a uh, model. Um, <laughs> so, um, so growing up, I don't think anyone ever really saw me, right? Like saw me for like me. Like I was always pretty smart, dependable, capable, willing to help. But I never felt, I, I didn't feel safe a lot of times. And I didn't feel like I had the space to be like small or unsure or weak. to just show up and just be, like be where I was, without having to be a certain way for someone. And so between academic performance and church involvement and like leadership roles, 
Like I formed this idea that Marissa, just the way she is without certificates or without awards or roles or responsibilities, she's not okay, right? She's not accepted. And when she fails, people won't want her, right? I believed this about myself for a long time and even from time to time now, I still struggle with that. And so all of these feelings um, meant that I knew a lot of people, like I knew a lot of people, but I never had a lot of close friends, right? I never had like this close-knit community. And some of that was also because we moved around a lot when I was, when I was younger. And so in my 20s, I began to pursue this idea of living in intentional community with others so that I could learn and like maybe have like uh, intentional community. And so I tried this three times. One community was um, cut short prematurely. One community began well and thrived for a couple of years before it ended pretty painfully. And the final time that I tried intentional community, it started horribly and it ended a lot worse a year later, right? And when it ended, there was deep, deep soul damage to six women, myself included. And it took seven years, okay, I'm gonna grab the tissues now, take these glasses off. Um, and it took seven years, it took seven years for God to heal me and free me from rejection and sin and guilt and false responsibility, like this is all my fault because if I knew how to be in relationships well, like this never would have happened. From shame, from lies, lies about myself, lies about other people, lies about who God is, self-judgment, unhealthy patterns. I felt so broken. I felt so broken and so helpless and so hopeless. Like the pain of disconnection at that time in my life was so great that I um, even attempted suicide. And after two seasons of counseling and a round of antidepressants and three out-of-state trips to healing prayer ministries and prayer appointments and pastoral care and like time in the word and too many defeated moments of I'll always be like this or I'll never have that. And too many sad, angry moments of Lord, how long? And a journey of a pretty consistent relationship from a small group who just didn't let me go. God finally lifted a seven year burden in 2014. Yeah. So not, not, not that long ago. And I remember it happened, like it, it felt like, um, it felt like that moment of saturation where it was like these small moments of like just the pain being chipped away, but it still felt like it was there. And I remember during a Sunday worship service, we were singing about the power of the cross. And I remember hearing God say, will you give this to me? Will you just lay it here? It was so clear. It was so clear. And I remember saying, is that all I have to do? And God said, yes, that's all you have to do. And I did, and it was over. It was like two minutes. It was like two minutes in the service, and then it was over. 
it was over. And I couldn't believe that at one moment this burden was there, and then the next moment it wasn't. Now, some work happened in that seven years. It's not like that seven years was for naught. It's not that, like, you know, if it happened seven years prior and God was just like, lay that down, it was time. It was time. It was time. And from time to time, right, I still struggle. I still struggle with, um, with loneliness and I still struggle with community, right? But that struggle with loneliness and community and even sometimes rejection, it's, well, actually not. Actually, no, it's not rejection. It's just the loneliness of community, but it's not automatically tied to like this self-rejection. It's not tied to sin. It's not tied to guilt. It's not tied to like that false responsibility or shame or lies or self-judgment or unhealthy patterns, like, right? Sometimes I can slip, right? Sometimes I can slip, but the slip feels like a, like a normal struggle and not like a debilitating burden that I'll ever get my, my, myself out of. And there are times when, there are times now when I can just be in the loneliness without assigning meaning to it and just wait for it to pass. And there are times when I can even reject loneliness and saying, no, I don't choose this for myself. I don't choose this feeling right now. And I can draw near to God and I can draw near to others. And I've learned how to trust in Jesus. I've learned to I've learned to experience the one who knew what it meant to be alone and to experience rejection without having it warp his sense of self or his belief in the promises of God. The scripture says that the one who was rejected became the chief cornerstone. I know what it's like to be in the pit, to have God come and meet me there and to send people to wait with me there and to pull me out. Because of that, I've learned Ecclesiastes 3. It says, I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. It is because of the Lord's great love that we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great, great is your faithfulness, Lord. And I say to myself, even if I don't have what I want, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. And I will wait for him. And he is good to those whose hope is in him, to the ones who seek him. So who is the source of our hope? It is Jesus, who Hebrews actually refers to as the better hope. From our website, we say that Christ is the object of our faith. It's also the subject of our faith. Christ is the object of our faith and the one on whom all of our hopes and dreams hang. He is the one with whom we are captivated. He is the one to whom we look. He is the one we follow. He is the one we invite others to follow. I was thinking, um, I was just like, God, what, what should I, Jesus, what should I, what should I say about you? And I was really having a hard time figuring out what to say about Jesus last night and this morning. And you would think that like after walking with Jesus for a little bit of time, um, just a little bit of time, 
um, that I have like, so I was like, I'm, I'm like really struggling like to figure out what to, to say about you. And, um, and the Lord actually brought to mind a sermon I preached 11 years ago. And I went back to it and I sat with it and it seemed right that I share a portion of it with you this morning. I'm not in the habit of recycling words. Like most of the time I have all the words. Um, so this is actually, um, this is actually a little different. So, um, yeah, so, uh, 11 years now. Um, so this was a, a, a pe this was a, a sermon, um, that I actually preached on Christ in you, hope of glory. And this was the piece that I wrote about Christ. Paul writes a letter to the believers in Coloss on what he wants them to know about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the son whom God loves. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created, by him all things, for him all things were created. He is before all things, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the highest possible position of power. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And through his body and through his blood, he is the great reconciler, reconciling people to people, people to God, people to creation, and all things in heaven and on earth back to God. This is what was on the mind of, Col of the Colossians simply because Paul mentioned it to them. But Paul is also writing to a church. So this isn't the first time that they've heard about Jesus. They're named as saints. So what else might have they heard about who the Christ is? It seems that we know from the Gospels, it seems that what we know from the Gospels would be what they would know as well. Seeing how these, their accounts, um, these, are accounts, these are the accounts of the first disciples, the men and women who initially took the message of God's kingdom into the world. Through them, they would have heard that Jesus was the son of man, that he was the son of God. He was Mary's boy, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, the Lord of heaven and earth, that he is gentle and humble of heart and that he gives rest for the soul. That Jesus is the hope of the nations and leads justice to victory. And the spirit of the Lord is on him. He preaches good news to the poor and he proclaims freedom for the prisoner, and he gives sight to the blind and releases the oppressed. He is the way and the truth and the life, and Jesus is the power of God, the wisdom of God. He's master and teacher, bridegroom and bread of life. He is the great physician. He is the good shepherd. He is our shepherd. Now, this is what they heard all those thousands of years ago. But what have you heard? In addition to the early accounts of the gospel, we've also been in the book of Revelation. That was 11 years ago, but as an aside, Christ City Church did a series on Revelation a couple of years ago. There are podcasts on the website. Feel yourselves. What does Revelation say about Christ? That he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, meaning he has the final authority over his church. And he's the one who walks among the seven lampstands. He longs to be among the churches that make up his body. 
At no point is he outside of your experience or the experience of human history. For he is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who lived and died and came to life again. He is the sharp and double-edged sword, the word of God who divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, the word that judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. His eyes are like fire and his feet are like bronze. He is the holy and true one. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness. He is the ruler of God's creation. Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He is a lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root and the offspring of David. He is the bright and the morning star. And not only is he the high priest, but Jesus Christ is also the lamb that was slain and by his blood has purchased people of every tribe and language and nation. And as the priest, he is orchestrating the process of our redemption and making intercession for us. And as the lamb, he himself is the provision for our atonement. There is nothing in our process of, of salvation. There is nothing in our process of sanctification that God alone, that Jesus alone does not do. Who is the Christ? He is worthy to receive power and wisdom and wealth and strength and honor and glory and praise forever and ever. In your own journey and in your own personal experience, what have you known? And beyond what you've known, what have you needed? Where was the place in your life that couldn't be filled or satisfied by any person or by any experience, by any circumstance or by any stuff? Where has it been Christ alone? Are you dealing with rejection and abandonment? Have you lost a key relationship in your life and you're trying to figure out how to make it through? He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Do you feel isolated and alone in the season of your life? He is Emmanuel. He is God with you. Do you find yourself robbed of opportunity, constantly thwarted by circumstances or other people in some arena in your life? What Jesus opens, no one can shut. Do you find yourself haunted by recurring thoughts or habits or experiences that need to come to an end? Have you been seeking closure without success? What he shuts, no one can open. Do you find yourself bound by hurtful names that have been spoken to you and of you long ago? Maybe words that have hindered your relationship to a woman hemorrhaging in, in, the, in the book of Mark in the gospel according to Mark, in a society of ceremonial laws of cleanliness and uncleanliness, this woman bleeding for her 12 years meant that no one could touch her. And when Jesus heals her, he calls her not woman, but daughter, a name of relationship, because that was the greatest suffering as a result of her sickness. Jesus knows how to name us and rename us in our moments of need. Who is the Christ? Are you praying for a more fruitful life? He is divine. Do you desire to know that you've not labored in vain? He is the Lord of the harvest. Are you weary from your labors? He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And when you're unsure how to get things started, how things will end, or even if you have the energy and the process to move from point A to point B, he's the author and the finisher of your faith. He's the initiator and the completer. And he who began a good work in you is faithful to perform it to completion. Do you find yourself frustrated in the fulfillment of your deepest longings again and again and again? He is the amen, 
not simply the one who says, so be it, but the one in whom it is. This is the sufficiency of Christ. He is the answer to all. This is the one on whom our hopes hang and apart from Jesus, we have no hope. What is more, the scriptures say that Christ, that Christ is in you and that that is your hope of glory. What does the all sufficient one in you say about the way that you respond to what you feel is lacking in your life? What does the author and the finisher of your faith in you say about your ability to initiate plans and to finish well? What does the rejection of the one who then became the chief cornerstone in you say about the way that you, st that you can handle rejection and still believe that God can fulfill the promises and purposes of your life? What does the one who was crucified to cancel the penalty of sin in you say about your ability to extend forgiveness and to receive forgiveness of others? What does the one who through whose body and blood reconciled all things to himself say to you about the status of your, your, your relationships and whether or not they are reconciled? What does the one who heard and received the words, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, what does that person, that Jesus in you say about your acceptance before God the Father? and therefore what your acceptance of yourself can be. What does the one who's been working and waiting for the day when all things will be made new say about your capacity to work and wait and watch? The bottom line is this, what, what does the fullness of the Godhead in you Jesus and you say about the way that you view, approach, and interact with God, yourself, and others, and the world around you. Knowing that, learning that, receiving that, walking in that, being rooted in that, that is our hope. That is our hope. So we're at the final one, the how. How do, we, how do we cultivate this hope? One is being in the word. One is simply being in the word. Knowing who Jesus is, knowing what Jesus does, being in scripture, and just seeing, seeing and learning and hearing and knowing and just letting it become a part of you. That's how we cultivate hope. And it's not ironic that my, in my struggle these last few weeks, I've actually not been in the word, like pretty much at all, except for to like be doing this. And I, like there's a, huge, there's a huge connection for me and my own feelings of hopelessness that I've been struggling with hope and that I also haven't been in the word. That's a huge thing. We also cultivate hope through the witness of the community, right? By hearing testimonies of hope for other people and by learning like, oh, it's not just me. I don't have this little dark rain cloud just over me, you know? Or sometimes when you're down, someone else is up and someone else can say and remind you, look at, let, let's look at God, let's look at God. 
Let's look at God. We cultivate hope by, by having perspective. When I stay grounded in God's character and God's love and God's goodness and God's presence, it's easier to hold to hope when things go sideways. When I take the long view and remember that no one is immune from, from suffering and disappointment, it's actually easier to have hope. When I remember the words of Romans 8, Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not, worthy, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. For in this hope, we are saved. And finally, we cultivate hope through worship. The practice of celebrating the worthiness of the Lord and rehearsing the truth of God in the good times and the bad times. God is worthy to be praised. There's a, a piece of a song that says, even when I can't see you, even when I can't feel you, even when I feel alone, I'll keep loving you, God. Even in the face of danger, even in the face of trouble, even in the face of death, I'll keep loving you, God. So this is our hope. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna turn to um, we're going to turn to taking communion. And communion is our hope like represented, like our hope in Jesus represented. Our hope that this isn't all that we see and our, and our hope that all things are made new. Our hope that whatever we've been trying to do under our own steam, Jesus has already accomplished it and said that it is finished. Our hope is represented and celebrated in these elements that we take in, this bo in the body that's represented by this little gluten-free wafer, this body that was broken and bruised so that we don't have to keep being unnecessarily broken and bruised. And this blood represented by this grape juice, this blood that was shed for a righteous man who died so that we would have, we would have the righteousness of God. And so there'll be two stations here. Um, the worship team will come up. They'll, they'll, they'll play a little bit for us. Y'all be, be kind to me. I've never like set up communion uh, for us. So, you know, I'm like, <laughs> um, I guess we gotta, we gotta move some things. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're going to have communion. Lord, um, Jesus, it's, it's on you, it's on Christ alone that our hope is, our hope is found. You are our life. You are our strength. You are our song, our cornerstone, and our solid ground. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. God, there are so many, so many ways and so many times that we place our hope 
and things that will fail us and ourselves and other people and situations and circumstances. Yeah, you keep issuing this invitation, just keep, keep coming back to me. All your fountains are in me. The source of everything that you need is in me. Keep, just keep coming back and keep coming back to me. Lord, as we prepare to take this wafer and, uh, and, and, this, and this juice that represent your body and your blood, Lord, will you invite us to confess the places where, where we, aren't, we aren't trusting you, we aren't putting our hope in you, and to receive your gracious invitation. Oh, for grace, oh Lord, to trust you more. Oh, for grace, to trust you more. And as we receive this body and this blood, may it be reminders of Christ in us and that you who held out hope, Jesus, you who held out hope so that we would have hope, you, your hope is in us. That we're not going outside of ourselves to get this hope, it's in us. It's in us and it's sure and it's strong. Even if it's small, that small little bit is still sure and it's still strong. So I pray that you would help us. Help us to receive Christ in us, the hope of glory. <laughs>